Taking a look inside the lives and minds of some of the world's most inspiring thought leaders. Suspend the disbelief that you think you've got to be exhausted all the time. That other identity was exhausted. Now let's go into a new identity that just got recharged. And now it's ready to perform and win on the home field. People living inspiring lives and motivating others. What was it that caused him to care so much about people that didn't have everything going for them at that time? Brought to you by Athletic. Greens. This is the Inspiring Lives Podcast with Gary Birtwistle. I'm Gary Birtwistle and welcome to the Inspiring Lives Podcast, the show that looks inside the minds of some of the world's foremost thought leaders to discover their recipe for success. Now, so far in the series, we've heard Rob Wolf, Tucker Max, Ryan Holiday, James Clear, and the Athletic Greens founder, Chris Ashington, and heard their advice to help us live an inspiring life. It's the Inspiring Lives podcast brought to you by the most complete supplement for a better you, Athletic Greens. Today, we meet best-selling author of a terrific book, The Alter Ego Effect. His name is Todd Herman. Todd's helped tens of thousands of people achieve their dreams by helping us develop our resilience, our creativity, and in doing so, help us be more competent and courageous. Todd does this by guiding us through a process to find and bring to life our own alter ego. He's clocked up over 15,000 hours on the field of play, working one-to-one with people from a diverse range of backgrounds to help them develop an impenetrable mindset. Now, these mindset strategies are used by business leaders, entrepreneurs, entertainers, and some of the world's best athletes. And he does it to help them do the hard things, the things that matter. So with that said, Todd, welcome to the Inspiring Loves podcast. Yeah, well, happy to be here. When when people meet you now, Todd, and ask you what you do, how do you like to reply? Um, I build alter egos and secret identities for athletes and public figures. No, I, I try to at least <laughs> stunt, them, stunt them a little bit where they go, wait, what did you just say? <laughs> That's the coolest um, answer I've ever heard. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's it's truly what I built my career off of. But I mean, obviously, I've done a lot more than that. I mean, I, I essentially work with people on, uh, you know, peak performance strategies to help them get out of their own way and allow all the capabilities that they've got uh, come pouring out of them. And, you know, I kind of focus on three more, three main key areas. One's the mindset side of things. One is strategy. And then the final one is like execution. How do you actually get this, you know, um, whether it's business or whether it's um, sport, doesn't matter. How do we actually make this thing happen on the field? So if you were setting setting up the book, and I want to go through the book today with you, I've got loads to ask you about. If you're setting up the book, there's probably yeah. different interpretations people can have around an alter ego. Just explain yep. how you work with alter ego based on the book. Sure. So, uh, you know, one thing, this is a kind of a more of a, a big takeaway idea for people is just always remember this, that human beings will always act through whatever they associate themselves with. So, um, you know, there's the, there's obviously a narrative of what it means to be an Aussie, right? So Aussies are this, and there's this definition that people create, or, you know, if someone's in the military, you know, someone who's a Marine, they act a certain way. And so we, we will, we will always stay and act in accordance to whatever we associate that our, ourselves with. So those definitions, those beliefs that we have about ourselves. And what's really powerful about the human mind and the human consciousness is we have the ability to be shapeshifters. We do it all the time. Uh, we're not oak trees. We're not pine trees. 
We're not something for the rest of our life. We have the ability to change. And the reason is because the one great superpower that we have, I mean, take a look at this right now. Um, what's the most powerful uh, group of movie or movie genre that's out today? Well, it's like superhero movies, right? Mm, I mean, the Avengers, right now, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Avengers Endgame is massive right now. Mm. And it's been this way for like a decade. It's the best genre in movies. And well, why is it? Well, I mean, we love the kind of superhero origin story stuff. We sort of love to imagine what it would be like to have some of those superhero qualities or superpowers. And um, we, we live through that in our imagination. And the funny thing is, we do have a superpower. And, and it's the one thing that makes us unique on the planet as a being. And that is our creative imagination. It's truly the only thing that we have that's different from other species. And now I'm not downplaying the power of like love or gratitude or other powerful emotions like caring, but other animals have those things. They don't have the ability to create heavens from hell and hells from heaven. They don't have the ability to create story and narrative in their own minds about who they are and what the world is around them, the ability to create meaning from things. And so our creative imagination is extremely powerful. And I say all that because I have been able to witness in my career now for 22 years of working with, whether it's pro Olympic athletes, executives, public leaders, uh, public figures, see someone shift in an instant, the moment that they accept a new identity of who they think they are or what they think that they can do by acting through something that they're now inspired by, a, a new identity that could be taken from James Bond, could be taken from Spider-Man, could be taken from Wonder Woman or your favorite athlete, or you know, to use Kobe Bryant as an example, the Black Mamba, a snake. And, and so we can take on that new meaning and act through it. And what it does is it disassociates ourselves from our own idea of what we think we can and can't do. And now we're acting through a new identity. And so it's rooted deeply in our mode of operation and and how we've always operated. So I'm not inventing something new here. I've codified the process in the book on how to leverage this. Um, But the reality is every single person that's listening to this has already used it. That's That's the really powerful part about it. And it's something you talk about in the book, Todd, to that point, is that kids kids look to superheroes and kids act out their day yeah. through being a superhero. But somewhere along the way, as adults, we lose touch of what it means to be our best and step into our superhero. <laughs> Yet hearing yeah. you talk about it, it also is one of the questions you hear quite often on a Q&A on a, about a sports person or a celebrity or someone to say, if you had a superpower, what would it be? So mm-hmm. why do we lose, why do we have it, but we lose touch with it? Well, one of its one of the reasons is biologically. You know, when we're in the when we're in the most formative development stage of our life, which is the age of zero to seven, human beings um, and children are locked into what's called the theta brainwave state. So, if you've ever heard of brainwave states before, there's beta sits at the very top, there's alpha, theta, and then delta at the very bottom, where really deep restful sleep sits. And theta brainwave state is where the zone and flow state sits, where you know people have heard those terms before, and you know if you've ever experienced it, if you're an athlete or if you're someone who's writing or whether you're just working in your day, it could be even when you're rebuilding your garage at home and you're just locked into all of a sudden, you know, eight hours flies by. That was you just locked into the flow of the activity, and you weren't thinking yourself through it. Um, and so children are locked into that theta brainwave state at a young age. And, and that's what allows them to accumulate so many skills and develop themselves so rapidly. But then after the age of seven, what happens is the frontal lobe 
right behind the forehead starts to develop more. And that's where reasoning sits. That's our logical brain. That's our ability to judge and think through things. That starts to develop. And so now it's starting to consume more of our brain power. And you know, then what happens is we can project off into the future. And we look at what our adults uh, are doing around us and they're like, oh, they seem more serious. And so, you know, kids like to mimic and they go, oh, well, I want to grow older. I want to have my, I want to be able to drive someday. And everyone's in, in that age group of seven to 15 is like, they can't wait to grow up. And, and then, and then you also look back at what you did when you were a kid and you're like, oh, that's so childish. Or you see what a six-year-old is doing now and like, oh man, like grow up kind of thing. And so you hear those messages as a kid and then you think the things that you were doing back then was wrong. And yet what was laying there and yet what you were using that entire time is actually the very thing that can free you in your adult age to find a completely new gear, which is, you know, those, uh, those days where you spent pretending to be someone and something else, which allowed you to test your abilities is exactly what you can do when you're 25, 42, 65, when you're pursuing and striving towards new things as well. Is alter ego the same as identity, Todd? Well, I mean, it's all sort of dancing around the same terminal self, uh, identity, um, your alter ego is a trusted friend and ally that you bring into the six inches between your ears to help you uh, pursue things with more grit and more grace. And and I say that because you and I, we all know, everyone has, no one has ever argued with the idea that you know, the people who get on in life the fastest are the ones who have the best network. Like we all know how important it is to have great friends around you, great relationships, strong mentors or coaches, or just allies to help you, um, you know, get to where you want to go. So we understand that at a, at an external level. And yet for me, as someone who operates, you know, and helps people on mindset, the one country, the one area, the one field that people don't think about that, uh, in is the six inches between your ears bringing a trusted friend and ally between that area to help you navigate things. And I say trusted friend and ally because Cicero, the great Roman philosopher, he's the one who coined the phrase alter ego back in 44 BC. And its root term means the other I or trusted friend. And so now this alter ego can be the one who goes out in your own mind to help take the slings and the arrows of defeat or resistance or judgment and criticism. And it protects someone's maybe fragile identity at the time, you know, and, and, and what might be stopping them from going and pursuing a, a creative pursuit or a uh, professional pursuit. Can there be a number of eyes? And the reason I ask the question is yes, because I was partway through your book and I knew I was going to be speaking to you. I was talking with a, an elite jet fighter pilot here in Australia. Mm-hmm. He's a wing commander, uh, call sign Peeps. And I was talking to him about this. And I said to him, when you're in combat in a dogfight, do you have an alter ego? And I haven't even finished talking. Tony went, I've got three. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, when, I, when I'm in the, in the cockpit, in a dogfight, he said, I'm a beast. I'm an animal. He said, I'm just feral. I just have to win because it's all on the line. Yeah. Then when I stand in front of my command, I've got 260 men who work for me on the airbase. I've got to be the leader. So I step into a different character. Yep. But then when I get home, I have to be a completely different because I can't be that person at home with the kids. Now I've got to jump on the floor and play with my young kids. So he, he made out that he had three alter egos. Is that common? Yes. 
Absolutely. And it's, it's super powerful. I'm glad he articulated it that way too, because it's so common. And when you think about life, I mean, there is no one single I. There is, we, we have many selves that we bring out there. And it's, of course, like myself in business, I'm a challenger personality that I bring to that environment. Why? Because I'm working with, you know, extraordinary achievers and, and people who are pursuing and striving towards big things. And, and so I need to break many frames for people because they, they're not going to respond to someone who's weak anyway. Now, when I go home to my three little kids, I've got a six-year-old, a four-and-a-half-year-old, and a two-year-old little boy, um, the last thing that they want is that challenger personality to come home and you know browbeat them into doing stuff. They want a more fun and playful uh, type person to, to, to show up that way. And so my inspiration for how I'd like to show up for them, and this person might not be well-known in Australia, but he's revered here in North America, which is Mr. Rogers or Fred Rogers. And, um, you know, huge TV personality over here, Rennick had a children's show and, and art arguably, you know, one of the best type of characters you could bring to a young, uh, to, to around young children. And so that's who my inspiration is, is, is that type of person so that I can be more maybe, uh, patient with them and, and that, and same thing in business, you know, exactly like, uh, the, the pilot had said, you know, I need to be, there are certain qualities and traits I need to bring to the table when I'm the leader of my business for my team. And just like when I go on stand on stage, that is a different persona that's going to help me to succeed if I, when I go out there. And so when people start to understand that one of the, one of the great dangers that's happened over the last probably 60, 70 years in the world of psychology is that people have trotted out this idea that, um, Individuals who have a single self, a single identity, are the people who are the healthiest mentally, fundamentally wrong. And in fact, the entire world of psychology has changed their tune on that in the last decade. And the fastest growing area of research and study right now in psychology is the theory of multiple self theory, which is that human beings who have and, and see themselves as having many selves, many sides to what they are, are the people who are the healthiest mentally. And when you think about this, you know, like Gary, if your if your radio show plummets to the ground, your business plummets to the ground, and you and you are totally wrapped up in only identifying yourself as, you know, a um, an interviewer or an entrepreneur, it's going to ruin your entire life. You're going to be miserable at home and everyone else. But me, and you know, when I'm is. I see myself as having many fields. So I can have, even if my successes are being minimized in business, that doesn't mean I'm a failure as a father. doesn't mean I'm a failure as a husband. That's not a failure as a friend. I see myself as having many selves. So even if there's one little chink that's in my armor, that doesn't mean that I fall apart mentally. Something in the book to build on that, Todd, that I, I thought was really very profound is the, the comment you made in the book was, it's not you that's doing it. And taking on the alter ego gives you almost um, a persona that can take on mm-hmm. things that you personally think you wouldn't normally do. And if yep. I combine that with the story you just told about coming home, I interviewed a guy called Jay Dobbins and he's a famous American undercover cop, did 150 missions undercover and was most famous for infiltrating the Hells Angels and lived inside the Hells Angels for two years. When I interviewed him and thinking about your book, we spoke a lot about alter ego and he had to create an alter ego, the Jaybird, to live inside the Hell's Angels. Mm. 
The challenge for him is when he got home to his wife and his son, Jackie, he walked in as a hell's angel. And his wife was quite straight up with him and said, you you better stop this fella because, you know, you're here with us now. You've got to change that. And he said because he wasn't able to come out of the character, he did a lot of damage to his family. And I... Mm -hmm. The thing I spoke to Jay about is that I suspect there are a lot of corporate people who come home in their corporate alter ego and bring that into the home and it's damaging the home. Is that something you personally have been through? Do you see a lot of that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I see it with athletes. I see it with corporate professionals like you just outlined. You know, that idea, and again, think about it, especially when you're in business, for eight to 10 hours of your day, you're flexing a behavioral muscle of you intentionally showing up in a specific way to help you win on that field. And then you go home and most people haven't thought about what it means to be successful there. Like what's that self that could show up there and also be successful? Also, we take the people that are you know, nearest and dearest to us for granted that they're always going to be there. And so we, we slough off. We don't, you know, act with intention. And, and so people go, listen, Todd, I'm exhausted when I get home. No, I get that that's what your current experience is, but that, isn't, that doesn't have to be the case because here's what I know about what it means to be a peak performer or what any human being can do is there's always another gear and you can find it and be playful. Again, the root of this, never forget this, is the pathway to a powerful performance is playfulness. It's it, it, we, we see it with children. And so that's why this isn't about me standing in front. I mean, even though I'm unpacking alter egos and how I've used them, I tell people, this is a private thing. This is something that you're using to help you master your own psychology, master the, your own way that how you want to show up. And so, you know, by you, when I walk through the door of our home, I have a little hook by our front door. And there's a little bracelet that sits there that my daughter, Molly, my oldest daughter, Molly made for me a couple of years ago. And it has the initials M, S, and C on it, Molly, Sophie, and Charlie. And I walk through the door and I put on that bracelet and I snap it. And that little snap is a little reminder as to me activating a very specific identity so that I can be a hero there as well. I mean, you know, I only get these little kids for a short amount of time. And I, I want to, I wanna, you know, for lack of a better term, I want to freaking crush it there just as much as I want to freaking crush it in business as well. And, and that excites me. And so to so those executives that haven't really thought about how they're showing up at home, A, that's natural. But, you know, now that you've got a new idea to step into, I would say to you, suspend the disbelief that you think you've got to be exhausted all the time. That other identity was exhausted. Now let's go into a new identity that isn't exhausted anymore. It just got recharged, and now it's ready to um, to perform and and win on that field, which is the home field. And I talked about this in the book where I was doing, and I've done a bunch of work with the military, where I did a speech speech at Fort Bragg, which is the largest army base in America, also the largest army base in the entire world. It's in North Carolina. And uh, after I did this talk to a bunch of Green Berets and um, Army Rangers. This uh, you know, high-ranking official came up to me and he pulled me aside and we walked outside and he said, listen, I, I love what you had to say, but I, I'm, 
I'm dealing with something at home right now where, you know, I spend all day challenging these young kids and trying to mold and shape them into uh, powerful soldiers. And when I get home, I find myself doing the exact same thing with my kids. And I said, it's natural. Think about it. For 200 years, the military has been perfecting the art of the narrative of what it means to wear the uniform that you've got on right now, right? And and yours and you're doing that as well with what you're talking to these young soldiers about is like the credo of what it means to be in the army. And you have you go home, do you leave that army uniform on or do you change? He's like, well sometimes I do and I said, okay, you haven't built a powerful routine. Let's let's create a new uniform that you put on when you get home. And like you know, most people's wardrobes at home at home aren't very intentional. This is actually the power of having a specific uniform in work or in life. People kind of miss out on that. They look at Steve Jobs and they go, oh, you know, black turtleneck and blue jeans. No, no, no. He was also creating a powerful, you know, almost alter ego for himself. And when you when you use the same uniform over and over again, it makes it so much easier for you to slide into it. So for him, we kind of unpacked it and he kind of, and he started to get, he started really like the idea. And so for him, it was, you know, a specific golf shirt that he was going to start wearing. And whether if it was during the wintertime, it was blue jeans and during the summertime, it was, you know, shorts or whatever. And I said, now, what does it mean to put that on? What is that? Like, let's attach some meaning and a credo to that golf shirt and that, um, that pair of shorts, that pair of jeans. You know, who is it that's showing up for their for your kids at that point? Anyways, you know, two months later, he sent me this extraordinary heartfelt email about how it's transformed his home life because now he feels like not only is he a powerful leader in the army, but he's now he's a powerful leader of his family. And he's not dealing with the exact, and I mean, when you take a look at the divorce rate of people in military families, it's exceptionally high. Same thing as at police force is the same thing. That's because they wear uniforms that mean something deeply, but then when they go home, they don't turn it off. So Todd, are we, are we creating what you call a, a totem or a prop? And the example in the yeah. book you used was Dr. Martin Luther King actually didn't need glasses, but he put on the glasses in order, in his mind, to create that alter ego. And yeah. you, you yourself bought a pair of, which I love, the non-prescriptive glasses. And you said yeah. that you, <laughs> you bought them to wear them as your alter ego, which I'll let you explain, to feel smarter. Yeah. Is... That uniform you talked about and or a proper totem, this is a means to create the alter ego, isn't it? Yeah, it's 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 a powerful intention, it's a powerful routine, but there's also science behind it. I and mean, that's one thing we haven't maybe talked about that much in the interview so far, but there's I mean, I, I unpack the science behind how all of this and why all of this works so well in the book. But what we're tapping into um, psychologically is a phenomenon called enclosed cognition. And enclosed cognition is that we as human beings attach story and meaning to the clothing or articles or things that other people wear or that we wear. And so, you know, there's a great study that was done at the Kellogg School of Management where they brought in a bunch of students to do this uh, this sort of puzzle test, which is, if you've ever seen this puzzle where it's got the word of a color, but then the the word is colored differently than the color itself. So the word says yellow, but it's done in orange. And then the word says red, but then it's colored in blue. And what you need to do is actually say the word, not the color that you're saying, which is actually quite difficult because your brain processes color before the words. So there's a bunch of words that are on there with different colors. And um, they're there to test to see how quickly they can um, uh, do the test 
but then how many mistakes that they've made. So they bring in these students, they do their, they do the uh, test, they leave. Then they bring in another group and they hand them a white coat. And this time it's a, uh, and they tell me it's a painter's coat and they put on this coat and they do the test. So they track all the data and results and then they leave. They bring in another group and this time they hand them the same white coat, but they tell them it's a lab coat or a doctor's coat. And then they do the test. Well, what were the results? Well, the people who wore the lab coat or doctor's coat were able to perform the task in less than half the time and less, make less than half the mistakes. Well, why is that? Well, because we attach meaning to what it means to wear that coat or what it means to have a doctor's coat on our lab coat. And, and, and the moment you put on that lab coat, Gary, you're going to start to act through the traits of someone who's careful, methodical, and detailed. All, all typical traits that we attribute to a lab person or uh, a doctor. And it just so happens that being careful, methodical, and detailed helps you with that specific test they, they were just given or that task. So then what happened to the people who had the painter's coat on? No difference whatsoever than the people who had their plain clothes on. Why? Because a painter's coat means that you're more creative, imaginative, and expressive. Those three traits don't help you with that specific task. Okay, so... We do this and we do this very unconsciously. So that's all I'm trying to leverage. Like, here's the thing. I think there's a lot of crap out there in the personal development world where people are trying to invent things to, to work for you. Whereas me, I'm simply just greasing the, uh, the slide that's already there. I want to use existing phenomena that, I, that operate inside of the human consciousness so that I'm not inventing anything. I didn't invent an alter ego. I just simply noticed its use amongst um, athletes who were consistently performing at a high level. They kept on referencing it. They didn't even know that they were doing it in some ways, like that intentionally. And I just codified a process. So enclosed cognition is natural. So then I want to build and give people totems and artifacts or talismans to help them create meaning about what it means to put something on so that it activates those traits and allows them to flow out of you very naturally. So that's what I did. I went and bought a pair of non-prescription glasses. Um in order for me to get past my insecurities of how young I looked when I started in business. And, you know, I'm going to go out and do speeches at 21 on, on the mental game. And I was like, oh, who's going to believe me? And, you know, I don't have nine degrees and I don't have 25 years of experience. I don't have a best-selling book, you know, all this kind of crap. And the reality was I was really good because I had been doing it, you know, as a side thing. It wasn't a business. I was just, I was working at a high school, working with some of the athletes there after I finished playing college football and I was a nationally ranked badminton player. I was, I was a good athlete, but my strength wasn't my physical size. My strength was my mental game. So I was just helping the athletes on, you know, giving them some of the things that I, I used and people started asking me to do speeches on it. And, you know, I was like, why are they asking me to do this? I, I don't have a degree in this stuff, but I shared what I had and, but it would stop me from getting my business out there. And, and so I went out and just like I had used an alter ego when I played sports, I was like, wait a second, you know, I can use this same idea to help me get past my own insecurities and step into this version that I, that I want to start showing and bringing out there, which is someone who's more confident and articulate and decisive. So I went out and bought a pair of non-prescription glasses to help activate that. And I called it my super Richard to take that kind of inspiration from Superman who put on glasses to become Clark Kent, more mild-mannered. I was using the exact opposite. I was putting them on to kind of put on my cape sort of thing. And you know, six months later, I had just booked two major workshops. And uh, when I hung up the phone, I noticed out of the corner of my eye that my glasses were sitting on the desk. And I had finally become that confident person that I was 
you know, spending all that time activating, which is kind of the root idea of all this is Cary Grant said it beautifully. He's the Hollywood golden era actor where he coined this quote at the end of his career where he said, I pretended to be somebody I wanted to be, and I finally became that person, or he became me. But at some point in time, we met. And I think that's a really beautiful way to think about how we can really start showing up in life very intentionally by you choosing how you want to be instead of you being chosen by other people and being defined in so many ways by your story and your narrative of what you think you, you can and can't do. Um, and you know, Martin Luther King did the exact same thing. I did a speech in San Antonio, Texas at this leadership event, and I kind of mentioned the, my mental game of how I used a, a pair of fake glasses when I started out. And um, this lady came up to me afterwards and she said, uh, I loved your talk. Specifically, though, I loved that you wore a pair of non-prescription glasses because Martin wore a pair of non-prescription glasses, too. And when I looked down at her placard of her name, it was Coretta Scott King, Martin Luther King's wife. And um, and then she shared the story of how, you know, when he sat down to write, he would put on a pair of non-prescription glasses to step into what he called his distinguished self so that he could say the things that he needed to say in order to lead an entire movement in a nonviolent way. And he didn't want his insecurities to get in the way of what that message was going to need to be so that he could step into a way what he might think is a better version of himself, a more actualized version of himself. And it's such a beautiful, I was like, well, I'm very happy to share that kind of same thing as, as, as Martin Luther King. And, um, you know, I, I would say there's probably a lot of listeners that probably have some important things that they want to go and pursue, but for some reason, they have a tough time seeing their current self doing it. But if you built out an alter ego, the great thing about it is you've now suspended the disbelief, you've disassociated yourself away from your own identity, and now you can start acting through and allowing the traits that you've already got to start flowing out of you. Two questions on that. You you assigned yourself a name of Super Richard, and yeah. I have heard Eminem created Slim Shady, Beyonce created Sasha Fierce, David Goggins, the famous Navy SEAL Ranger, he created Goggins because he said David Goggins couldn't go to the dark place that Goggins had to go to. So Mm -hmm. is naming it a valuable thing? And the second part that you said in the book that you actually assigned values to Richard, which were smart, decisive and articulate. Those two pieces together seem to give the alter ego some sort of character or something I can step into. Is naming it and assigning values part of your process? Yeah, it's really important because the moment that we name, like if we don't name something, it's it's not, uh, it's still a little bit too amorphous. The moment we name something, we give it more identity. We're, we're, uh, we've given it form. We've given it substance. That's just human beings. We create our worlds through language, right? And that's what's so unique about our experience. We use language to create our worlds, and and so when we when we create and name the alter ego, it creates a powerful association. You know, Super Richard is going and doing this. You know, and so that way, like if you have some sort of insecurity about if I had like I had that insecurity about what I thought Todd could go and do, um, then but Super Richard can go and do it just like Sasha Fierce could go on the stage and um, and perform these provocative dance moves and these provocative lyrics, despite the fact that Beyonce came from a gospel singing church going family. 
So of course that would create some sort of conflict inside of herself, but it didn't create a conflict over time because she uh, she started to realize that you know no this there's actually this other self that's in me that is this performer that goes out there just like Goggins he went out or David Goggins so David Goggins created Goggins which was this identity that allowed him to go to these dark places where you know he calls going into and suffering he wanted to go and suffer and um, and I've said this on stage for years where I say say to people all the time. Strength is forged in the suffering. That is, you know, when you hear about people's origin stories of what they've gone through and, you know, it's never, there's nothing that's inspiring about, you know, the beautiful dancing ponies and rainbows that someone might've experienced at one point in life. But when you hear that someone went through some really tough shit in their life and, and they found a way to get the other side, that's motivating, that's inspiring. And that forged a new strength inside of them. And so sometimes you might have a tough time seeing your current self doing that. But man, Goggins can go and do all that stuff. David's going to stay on the sidelines. Goggins is going to do that. You know, Just like Super Richard was able to get on the phone and make the phone calls to try and book speeches and book workshops and, and reach out to people. Todd would have been too scared. His ego would have been too scared to get the no's and the resistance and the rejection. But not Super Richard. Could care less. They were like bullets bouncing off the chest. Just didn't matter. It wasn't going to absorb any part of my identity. I wasn't going to you know, wrap myself up in, you know, the fact that people were maybe, you know, not wanting me to come, but Super Richard just couldn't care less. So naming it is really powerful. And then those values that we just talked about, you know, anytime we think about Black Panther, we think about that, that superheroes, um, uh, superpowers or Superman's superpowers or, and so, what we're doing when we're building up the alter ego is what are the values or what are the character traits or what are the superpowers that that, you know, super Richard had. And for me, it was, you know, confident, articulate, and decisive. Are you wearing glasses now? And the reason I asked the question is that you talked yeah. about it being non-prescriptive glasses, and then you did a telephone call and realized they weren't on yet. In the majority of photos on your website, you're wearing glasses. In most interviews I see you doing, you're wearing glasses. Do you now yeah. have to wear glasses, which are prescriptive, or do you still step into <laughs> your alter ego? <laughs> yeah, so um, the answer is uh, no, I still have 2015 vision. Um, <laughs> and uh, no, I don't need to use them anymore. Uh, to Just like Beyonce retired Sasha Fierce, um, I became, I, you know, I, I finally was able to, uh, you know, become that more confident, decisive and articulate self. But, um, I wear them now, A, because I just like to wear them for dress. Um, but B as well, even though I say in the book, you know, using an alter ego or secret identity, uh, to, to sort of navigate life with more, uh, grit and perseverance and, and all that is it's a it's a personal thing. This isn't something that you go out and you share to the world at all. Um, and but me as the person who is the purveyor and the sort of evangelist for this idea, um, I wear them as also a signal to other people that you know this is extremely natural. And I'm not showing up as being fake or anything like that. But it's me being very intentional that um, in that moment I am bringing you know, all of my absolute best qualities that I possibly can to, to that. And, and, you know, so it's, it's kind of a signal to other people and, but more, more than anything really right now is I just wear them because I, I like wearing them for dress. Got a question. You just used the word personal. A, a couple of queries I've got in my mind, Todd, that came 
from reading the book and then pondering the alter ego effect is a great American poet, Maya Angelou, uh, radio yep. personality, poet, super successful author. I think she was the first black American lady to ever speak at a presidential inauguration. Once said, I've run a game on everyone and I'm going to get found out. And Maya Angelou was talking about her imposter syndrome, which I suspect most successful people, and if not all of us, have that inside us somehow. Have you ever had to deal with your own imposter syndrome and have you used your own alter ego to deal with that imposter syndrome? Are you kidding me? Is this, <laughs> that's, that's an absolute freaking yeah, of course, man. Uh, I mean, I talk about in the book how it's really one of the, you know, I, I talk about the enemy in the book and uh, how the enemy uses many different forces to try to pull you into what I call the ordinary world, which is really pulling you away from the things that you want to pursue. There's common forces like, you know, the worry of other people what other people are going to think of you, just the self-doubt that people have, the judgment and criticism. But then there's hidden forces that are far more sinister and heavy. And one of them is imposter syndrome. And that imposter syndrome comes in a couple different forms. One is that it it is that voice that basically dismisses away all of your successes as luck, you know, right place, right time. Of course that was going to happen. Anyone could have had that uh, success if they were there kind of thing, which you know, all it's doing is it's, it's sapping your confidence, right? It's, it's, it's just not, it's not true. And then the other side of it is just like my Angelou articula- articulated that heavy doubt of, you know, yeah, people are going to find me out that I'm not as, you know, good as I, you know, think I am. And so, a hundred percent, it's showed up, you know, in the past, it doesn't show up you know, as much if sort of ever right now, it's like anything. Um, I recognize it for what it is. I'm like, oh, isn't that interesting? The enemy is throwing the little imposter syndrome uh, my way. Oh, nice trick there. And like, this is actually something I teach people is is the power of having a um, a a ping pong match in your head where. Instead of what most people do, which is they have a circular conversation where they're just beating themselves up or they're talking to themselves. Instead, inside of the uh, inside of our our minds, when you can understand that we live in a duality, there's a shadow and a light. There's the hero and there's the enemy. And the enemy has these forces. One of them, imposter syndrome. It likes to throw at us. And then you can and when you can recognize it, you can disassociate. You can just see that that's it's just it's a natural part of the human psyche. I go ah, the enemy is scared. So. You know, that's the child in some of us that we're reaching our end of our comfort zone and the enemy just wants to pull back into safety. Um, But the hero is there to say, listen, I've got this. Or it can talk back at it and say, listen, you little shit, get back to the sidelines. This is my freaking game. I'm in pursuit of something far bigger than some concern about imposter syndrome. And what if people find me out that I'm not quite as smart as they think that I am? That's a narrative that they've created. I haven't created that. I'm not out there trying to woo everyone with how smart I am because the reality is I'm going to get there because of grit and perseverance more than I'm going to get there because of smarts. So back yourself onto the sidelines, little buddy. I've got this game. I own it. And I talk in the book about you know the power of what I call response proclamations or the ground punch, just like the Incredible Hulk throws his fist in the ground and sends an energy blast out there to knock the enemy on its ass. Or Gandalf throws his staff onto the 
bridge when the get when the Belrog is approaching and he says, Thou shall not pass. I think we all have those moments sometimes in our day, in our weeks or in our months, where the enemy is approaching and it's trying to pull us back into safety. But there is this sort of inner hero that lives there. And it goes, you know, and my 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 question back to people is, do you have the balls or the guts to stare that thing down? and still pursue the thing that you want. And you slam your staff down into the ground and you say, thou shall not pass. Because the thing that you're committed to doing is far more important than you know concerning yourself with the worries of what other people might think of you. I could literally give two shits if people think I'm being fake because I'm wearing glasses that are not prescription. I don't give a shit because I work with high-performing, high-achieving people all the time, and they're literally leveraging these exact same things all the time. Actually, here, do you want me to tell you what one of the greatest athletes, living athletes on the planet, who's a client of mine, actually thinks of the opponents? But this would never come up. This would never come up in any sort of press conference because they couldn't say this stuff. Here's what one of the greatest soccer players that will ever live actually thinks about his competitors. He is offended he is offended that they're out there sharing the same blades of grass as him. He is he and and it's, he feels like it's his personal responsibility to absolutely humiliate and destroy them on the pitch so that they understand the level of talent and skill that he has. And he wants them to have to go out and suffer as much as he has in order to gain those skills because if he shows up in any way that plays down those talents, then he hasn't given that person the experience that they need to learn so that they can go off and be a little bit better that day. So he, that's exactly how he thinks. And that's a powerful superego. Now, he's not going to go out there and say that in a press conference. And this is what's really important is nowadays, we live in a freaking society that's trying to turn everyone into oatmeal and pablum so that everyone feels safe around people who are high performers so that you, you know, you're supposed to dim your light a little bit just to make other people feel better. Bullshit. If you're fucking awesome, then you go be awesome. And if someone has an issue with that, then that's their own psychology. But I'm not going to dim and mute and have my clients dim and mute any of their talents just to make other people feel safe. There ain't no freaking participation ribbons and gold medals that we're giving out over here. So based on that, tell us about Igor. And when you visualize Igor in your mind, what do you see? Well, so Igor was the, um, the enemy that um, Valeria, one of my clients, used to give form and substance to that enemy. And again, just like we're, we're naming the alter ego and we're giving it its traits and its qualities, you know, being able to know what that enemy looks like. So again, what's the most scary part of any horror movie? It's when we don't know what the enemy looks like, when we don't mm. know what the entity looks like. The moment that the thing comes out of the shadows, now we're like, oh, now I know how to kill it. Now I know what its weaknesses are or something like that. The same thing goes with that voice in our head that tries to utter the, you know, and spin the words of imposter syndrome to you or doubt and worry and concerns of other people. You know, give it a name. And then, so for for Valeria, what she saw was this bully that she had growing up in Ukraine that was her brother's friend who would always tease her about being a girl and that she's weak and that she can't play with them and all those kinds of things. And he was kind of relentless with her. Um, and so when she was on the court and that enemy would start to approach to get her to, you know, 
take her foot off the pedal or, you know, let someone else come back in the game or cause her to doubt that she could continue to fight through a really tough match. She saw that as Igor just coming and creeping onto the court. And so that's what she saw was, was him. And the moment that we, um, when we kind of basically created that form, uh, in her own mind of what the enemy looked like now, all of a sudden it allowed her to find a completely different gear and, and, you know, beat that enemy back to the sidelines. And so for her, she saw it as a face that was, that was showing up in her mind. And, uh, she did, she liked nothing more than to smash that face with a, <laughs> with a solid racket across it and move it off to the sidelines. But we all have those moments, right? Like we all have those, yeah. we all have those, those people that, you know, were the doubters in our life or the, the assholes that were out there, or, you know, it doesn't have to be even just a personal experience. It could be a, a character from a movie or a, book that someone likes that um, is just a natural enemy that we can use to just create this beautiful you know world in our own minds that that we get to navigate and win and um, yeah it's uh, and again this all goes back to I mean I kind of bring it up throughout the book um, but it's this it's this attitude of playfulness we are you know life is already life is already challenging and tough and uh, when you can operate with a with a great psychology of playfulness it it can free people from a lot of the strings of resistance that the puppet master likes to use to hold people back you just mentioned just two words life is challenging and tough and i've heard you say that a lot of peak performers if not most peak performers you meet yeah have had to struggle with past trauma of some kind and mm-hmm. you're you're not immune to this because you've in recent times, spoken of the fact that being at a school camp as a young kid and you were sexually assaulted by two men, which you carried with you for many decades. Have you today, Todd, created an alter ego to help you deal with that and come to grips with it? Yeah, um, great question. So, like you said, I had kept, I, I didn't actually even share that experience with anyone for, uh, almost 30 years until I finally kind of came to a breaking point where some stuff had triggered the, those, those old, um, that old experience. And I finally kind of talked to my, my wife about it and then kind of went through the process of uh, unraveling that with therapy. And, um, it, uh, when I was going through that, I was never the most vulnerable person. And again, when you understand where that, you know, that that experience I had when I was twelve, and you know that happened over the course of you know two days. Vulner, vulnerability was my enemy back then. Almost, you know, being vulnerable. I was twelve years old, and you know, I you know you don't have the the strength to fight back or whatever the case is. So vulnerability was never a strength of mine, and so I recognized that. And again, because I've lived inside of the mental game world for a long time, I, I knew that that was going to be something I needed to you know, turn into a superpower. So even when I was going into those kind of therapy sessions, I was even, you know, stepping into a new identity of, of someone that I wanted to, I wanted to see how fast I could overcome something that had been with me for such a long time and ruled a lot of my behavior and vulnerability was going to be one of my superpowers. And now I've brought it into, you know, the way that I operate now. And, you know, to your point, you brought it up on this. It doesn't rule me that, that story you know, had ruled me for a long time. I was terrified of the shame and guilt that came along with that story. Now I can talk about it freely. 
and it's empowered me in many ways. Plus, the great thing is it's invited a lot of people into my world that have reached out to me and um, you know privately, whether it's on Instagram or Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever the case is, and saying that they've gotten a lot of maybe inspiration from maybe the courage to share it publicly. And you know, if I if I can be a you know a flag bearer that way for people, then I'm then I'm happy to. But uh, yeah, you know, like I've seen so many athletes and professionals, not even athletes, but professionals who they think that their edge comes from something that was traumatic for them and they're, and they end up not pursuing any sort of recovery with it because they think that if they give up that edge, they're going to lose their ability to perform at a high level. And, and that's a kind of a dangerous paradigm because it's not, not true at all. Um, and, and, and even me, I had, for the for a long time thought that you know the people who seem to succeed or pursue or achieve great things in life a lot of them come from some very very difficult times and i've since very fortunately been able to see on the other side that that's not true either you know we got to be careful with some of these uh, beliefs because i've come across uh, a lot of people in the last couple of years that you know they didn't come from some sort of like sexual assault they weren't beaten as kids they weren't and they've and they've led successful lives as well um but but i have i have experienced that a lot of people that have seemed to achieve some big things you know oftentimes they come from some difficult things something i'm really curious about todd and this is something that i found fascinating about you and your background is that you said you're a lot of your purpose, your mission in life is heavily associated with your family name. And Mm -hmm. I've never heard anyone ever talk about their purpose or mission in life being associated to their family history. And I'm just wondering, is that sense of responsibility in some way to the family name? Is that a kind of alter ego you carry within yourself? Yeah, it's it's definitely an inspiration for it. So, you know, I'm I'm so fortunate that I came from two parents that are, you know, were, were great role models for me. I've got great brothers and sisters. I've got, you know, a good family. I love, and I would actually encourage a lot of other people to learn. If you haven't learned much about your family history, like going back many, 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 many generations, because um, it's it's often inspiring to f- see some of the characters that you that you see in your past um, or from your family's past. But I just, you know, in the in the book in chapter three, I talk about. The, the different layers that end up creating how we see ourselves and how we show up and, and our identity. And one of those layers is the core drivers layer. It's, it's, and core drivers are those things that are larger than us, that drive us, that can motivate us. You know, it could be our religion, it could be our country, a nation, could be the race that we're a part of, or um, an identifiable group like being in the army or police um, causes that we're a part of. And family is a big one. And um, because I, you know, am fortunate and I care deeply about uh, my family, I, I attach even more meaning to what it means to be a Herman. And um, and I talk about that with our kids, and it's actually a powerful parenting technique. Where with our kids, we talk to them all the time about what about what it means to be a Herman, so that if they start to act outside of that identity, they actually pull themselves back. So for example, um, just this past weekend, you know, I got little ones. So we were off in this park and Sophie was climbing a tree and she got a little bit scared. And I, and she was like, dad, I want to come down. I said, Hey, you can come down whenever you want. And then she kind of looked at me and she looked back up and she said, but Herman's aren't quitters. And she, and she reached back and she, yeah. And she reached up and she climbed to the top of the branch. And then when we came, when she came back down, 
I, I kind of unpacked it with her and I said, um, Sophie, I'm so proud of you for you, you know, pushing past that kind of fear that you had. Um, and she's like, yeah, but Herman's aren't quitters. And I said, yeah, but you know what, if any time, if you ever want to quit, it's always safe to do that. Cause you, you know, I don't want to create a paradigm that, you know, you've always got to, and, but it's, it's powerful to use that as a, a great mechanism to, to get your kids to, to see themselves as being a part of something bigger. And again, that's what gives life a lot of meaning to people is when you can feel like you're a part of something larger than yourself. That's what gives things a lot more meaning and it can drive, again, it's, you take a look at the origin stories of these superheroes to go back to them. There's something else that's driving them that's larger than themselves. And if they're doing something that's out of pure um, you know, uh, self-preservation, that can be a great place to start, but then over time, there needs to be more meaning that's attached to it. And uh, you know, for me, that's 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 all I need is I, you know I'd love to, you know, if I if I left the earth and you know I made the Herman name just that much more meaningful than than great. If I take you back through your family tree, Todd, your granddad was a talented sportsman uh, in the NHL, Major League. In fact, I think <clears throat> he even tried out for the Yankees, if I'm correct. Yeah, he did. If if you could sit with your granddad today, based on your family tree, if you could sit with your granddad with all you know, the study, the work you've done with people, high performers, if you could ask him a question today, what would you want to know? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I would want to know... Um, I would want to know what was it that caused him to care so much about people that didn't have everything going for them at that time. Um, and, and the reason is because my, my, my nana and my papa, both through the 19, late 1930s and early 1940s, would, because my mom tells me about these stories, they would routinely have friends stay with them for months and even years at a time and they would give up their master bedroom and they would sleep on the couch or on the floor to give to give them a sense of you know normalcy or to um maybe i I don't know i'd love to hear from my papa to hear like you know what was it what what made that so meaningful for him and Mm. i just think i mean again like to think that you're going to sleep on the floor to allow someone the dignity of a of a warm bed is just so inspiring for me. Like that's incredible. And again, this goes back to like why I feel so, you know, I feel like it's such a powerful thing to to know a lot about your family history because in it you can find a lot of meaning, and uh, and it can drive you to do things that you know maybe if you're just trying to do them for your you know selfish reasons wouldn't wouldn't give you very much fire. Great story. Yeah. Great story. You, you've had your own sporting background and something I'm interested in is when you were on the footy field, the alter ego you created was Geronimo. <laughs> and I mm-hmm. love that because I, I, I really do admire and love the Native American culture. For you, what do you draw from that, Todd? Like what's the, what's the, the attraction for you with Geronimo and or the Native mm-hmm. American culture that helps you with your, that, that part of your alter ego? Well, that they were, they were, when they would get into a tribal dance, 
they would, and they're dancing around, say, a fire. What they're doing is they're trying to channel a something that's larger for them. But what they're also trying to do is they're trying to unite together. So five or six or seven warriors that are all dancing around a, a fire together are, are trying to become one, are all trying to align together so that they become a more powerful force when they get on their horses and ride or when they all charge out together. And, and for me, you know, because I was young, but I was diving deep into the world of the mind back then. I wanted to just align those three worlds that we have, which is the mental, the emotional, and the physical. And and that ended up becoming what I built my name off of, which is the aligning of the triune athlete, the mentally, emotionally, and physically tough athlete. Because when you align all three of those things together, the likelihood that all of your skills come out of you um, in its most powerful form just increases by an exponential rate. And so... That's what I, that's one of the things I was tapping into as I wanted to carry the spirit of that, you know, that fight of Geronimo, you know, like especially during the colonization period that they're fighting for, you know, their right to their land or their, you know, it's, it's, it's that, that sort of that battle. And because I'm going into a, a sport that, you know, just like, I mean, I played Australian footy here in New York City, and that's why we were we were saying before how all my all, all my best mates here in the city were all we're all expats, and so I, but I came I also come from the gridiron football of you know American North American football, and it's you know it's a it's a violent sport just like Aussie footy is violent as well, and so that that's the that's the context of an alter ego or an identity that you're creating for an area is you're you're really you're you're building up that identity in context to that specific field. And, 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 and me drawing on Geronimo in, in that sport really helped me show up in a more powerful way and, and sort of get past. Again, I was a six foot tall, 156 pound soaking wet kid. I wasn't very, mm. um, I wasn't physically, I wasn't physically gifted, but if I could win in one battlefield, it would be the battlefield of the mind. And that's where I built out a, a pretty strong skill set, I guess. Just to close the loop on this alter ego conversation, Todd, Miles Davis said, man, sometimes it takes you a long time to sound like yourself. And I'm Mm. just wondering to close the loop on this, to have an effective alter ego, do we first have to understand our true, true self, our personal, our authentic self? Is it, is that true? No, 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 no. And, and I would encourage everyone to completely abandon the idea of the authentic self. It's one of the most bullshit terms that's been created in the self-help world. You know, it doesn't exist because think about it. We've literally just been talking about the fact that there is no one self. So pursuing an authentic self is 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 like trying to grab water. It doesn't work. And, you know, even the even the word authenticity, I mean enough gang, like I've I've literally never heard anyone that's been successful in life ever talk about authenticity or authentic self. Why? Because anyone that's ever achieved anything understands that they're always pushing through comfort zones. You're always reinventing yourself. You're always trying to grab onto whatever tool and strategy that you can get onto in order or, or grab onto so that you can get to the next thing. And it's so dangerous. And the only people that talk about authenticity are the people who are trapped inside of the gravitational pull of average. It's, it's such crap. So, you know, and this isn't me saying that, oh, you need to go out there and be fake by any stretch of the imagination, 
But at the end of the day, like, I don't care if you think you're being fake in your own head, but if you just perform to your capabilities, that's what matters. Mm. Because that's what we're that's what we're judged on in society. You know, if you walk into your sales manager's office and you told him about the fact that you had intended to do ninety six phone calls this week, but you did two, he doesn't go, "Oh, well, at least you had the intention of it." No, it matters what you end up doing, not what you say you're going to do. So I feel like all these people who are doing all this signaling of authenticity and authentic self are all people who might be struggling with being fake. <laughs> I, I I spoke to an author recently who talked about picking up a beautiful pen or pencil and in her words, mm-hmm. she said, I, I feel like I'm Hemingway or Mark Twain or Shakespeare yeah. when I have that beautiful pen in my hand. Just to, to close this out, do you still wear your Darth Vader helmet when you write? <laughs> it's, it's funny. It's 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 sitting it's sitting right next to me, and um, there there are certain yeah. I, I again, uh, I think that, and again, I'm a naturally serious. I was always a serious kid, and so by me keeping this like Darth Vader helmet next to me, I, I like putting it on. And boy, when I when I need to cut through words fast like a lightsaber, um, that Darth Vader helmet sure does help. <laughs> Do you journal, Todd? Are you a journaler or a notebook guy? Um, I do, but um, I have a daily practice where every single morning, the very first thing I do is I actually write a handwritten note to someone, uh, to someone else, and I've done it for oh, twenty years now, and I've written over coming up on five thousand handwritten notes to people, and you know, to people like Ronald Reagan or Nancy Reagan. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, the actor, Daniel Day-Lewis, or you know anyone who I've read their book, I always write them a handwritten note. And so that's my way of, everyone talks about the power of gratitude and, and um, being grateful. And I, I like to take that idea and maybe magnify it by maybe passing the gratitude on to someone else. And what's funny is I've done this for now 20 years. Um, the most common response I get, and I mean, I've gotten letters back from Daniel Day-Lewis and Hoffman and um, Ronald Reagan, Nancy Reagan on, on presidential letterhead, is um, the most common response I get back is, you have no idea how much I needed to get this letter today. Wow. Yeah, because, you know, think about it, you know, again, in in the passionate pursuit of tough things, you know, there are days where people, good people can doubt themselves. And when you get a letter that says, you know, thank you so much, Gary, for taking the time to, you know, put your ideas out across the radio waves. Um, and specifically, there was one show that you did where a lady talked about how picking up a pen helped her step into a better writing version of herself. And that made a huge impact on me because I had been avoiding doing some things and I thought about some totems that I could go and, and buy to help me get out of my own way. Anyway, I just wanted to say thank you and keep up the good work. And you've got an avid listener um, who's not going to be stopping anytime soon. Cheers, Todd Herman. Do you need an address? <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do. Um, uh, and I'll get it from you afterwards. <laughs> so how do, speaking of that, how do you, I, I just think that's absolutely gold. How do you find so 
Philip Seymour Hoffman. How do you find, you send it to their publicist. I mean, how do you go about sending a handwritten, a beautiful handwritten yeah. letter to somebody? Yeah. So I also have like, I have a wax seal, you know, I drip it on. It's, it's this whole like, you know, um, uh, I like that kind of old school type approach. So when people get it, it's like, oh, wow, what's this? A wax seal? With, you know? Um, but no, I have a couple of, um, you know, I've got some good contacts, you know, being, being working in, working in sport, you've got access to different agents and you can kind of find addresses. But, you know, when you, when you're working, when you're sending it off to say celebrities like that, yeah, you're going through maybe publicists or, or whatever the, the case is, but there's, there's, there's other, other ways of getting people's addresses. And I've got, um, an assistant who can who can track down most anyone's address. That's gold. Todd, I'm very conscious of your time. You've been very gracious with giving us your time to have a discussion today. And it's been brilliant. I've, I've got another half a page of questions that I could just keep asking you about. <laughs> um, it's been terrific, mate. Where, where should people, the book, I, I loved it. Um, I love the audio book, which we talked about offline. Yeah. The way you come across so authentically in the in the audio book, I loved. Where do people go to get your stuff, mate? Yeah, I mean, my home base on the internet is uh, toddherman.me. It's got you know links to all the social channels where I can connect with people, and uh, you know my programs and the things that I help with people on is there. And then alteregoeffect.com is the kind of the home base for the book, and it's got all the links where you can go and buy it across the internet and you know your local bookstores as well. So, and like you said, there's the audio book that comes along is out there too for people. Todd, thank you, mate. It's been a real privilege and I, I really appreciate your time. Yeah, you're a champ. I appreciate it. Meet the people behind Athletic Greens. Welcome to the Green Room. To understand a brand, it's good to get behind the brand to meet the people that make it happen each and every day. I caught up with Taylor, who leads the customer experience team. You're based in Virginia, is that right? Yes, that's right. So how does that work with Athletic Greens living in Virginia? So it's a remote company and we're kind of spread out all over the United States and all over the world. Um, but yeah, it, it works out really well. So it's a true digital nomad lifestyle, isn't it? It is. You know, if I want to go travel and don't necessarily want to take a ton of time off for work, I can, you know, take my laptop with me and set up a, an office away from home somewhere. If you were thinking about the company and somebody said, you obviously love where you work and they said in one word, describe what it's like to work at Athletic Greens, what word would you choose? My first thought would be fun. I think it's so much fun to work at, at Athletic Greens. Maybe, and then the other, the other word that I was kind of struggling with um, and would be my second choice would be fulfilling. <laughs> so it's nice to have a job that's really fun, just a really amazing group of people. And our customers are amazing. You know, we've got some really great customers that are just a pleasure to talk to whenever you get on the phone and talk to some of these people. They're they're awesome. Couple that with, you know, knowing that what you're coming to work to do every day is to try to improve people's lives, help them live happier, healthier lives. It just makes it all, all that much better. And um, like I said, it's fun and, and that part makes it very fulfilling as well. What's the role you're in? Explain that for me within the business. Customer happiness is what we call our customer service team. And I think it's something that over the years has really been a huge part of our culture, you know, making sure that the customer is at the center of everything that we do. Can you recall a moment, Taylor, where you guys did exactly what you promise and delivered absolute happiness? Oh, uh, yeah, sure. Um, one comes to mind, a customer who had a, I believe it was a daughter and her mother's birthday was coming up. 
And the daughter had been a customer for a long time and loved the product, and she wanted to send a bag of Athletic Greens to her mother as a gift for her birthday. She contacted us, like, just a couple days before um, her birthday, and she asked, you know, is there any way that we can make this happen and get this to my to my mom? We actually got it to her mom on the day of her birthday and ended up being a really good gift, and the daughter and the mother both were really pleased. And we have, you know, different situations like that come up every day that we always try to, to do our best to, to give our customers what they want. And I've also heard that the company goes above and beyond to help in the community as well, Taylor. What sort of work did Athletic Greens do during the California wildfires? Because I know you were there to help. What what what, what did the company do? A big portion of our customer base actually is in California. Um, so we knew that we had probably had a lot of people out there who were affected by the wildfires. We kind of proactively reached out to those customers. And then for those customers that we actually were able to speak to, we offered support in the form of, we would offer to send them some travel packs so they can continue taking their athletic greens, you know, while they were getting things sorted out. We try to keep an eye out for any kind of natural disasters like that. Uh, you know, hurricanes, wildfires that may be affecting any of our customers. And we always try to reach out and offer whatever support we can in those situations. And sadly, there's too many of those sorts of things going on today, isn't there? I've got to say, Taylor, thank you for your time in doing this. What's interesting is the guys speak so highly of the work you do. So obviously you're doing a cracking job for Athletic Greens, for all the guys. You're really highly regarded. So um, and thanks for sort of fitting us into your day. Yeah, thanks so much. I appreciate your time as well. So that's today's show. There are loads more incredible guests in the weeks to come on the Inspiring Lives podcast. You can find all the show notes at athleticgreens.com. Thank you for joining us. Next time on the show, we speak with Michael Gervais. Michael's the sports performance psychologist elite athletes and coaches turn to when they want to level up. And he's also the mental performance coach for the NFL team, the Seattle Seahawks. He's worked with Olympic gold medalists, Super Bowl champion, NFL coaches, you name it, he's done it. And it's sure to be another cracking show. That's next time on the Inspiring Lives Podcast. The Inspiring Lives Podcast, brought to you by Athletic Greens. New episodes out every other Monday morning. Tune in and subscribe on the Apple Podcasts app or your favorite podcast platform.